Good morning. One of the cool things about being here at Restoration, good morning, I'm Nate. Nate Montgomery, thank you for being here. It is a pleasure to be a part of Restoration. One of the cool things about being part of Restoration is when you come on a Sunday morning, you never know what's going to be different. So maybe it's a different singer, maybe it's a different set of style of songs. There was one time, I don't know if you heard about it, but we had the, the guy preaching up here actually was kind of shaking his booty a little bit and doing it. Oh, wait, that was last week, wasn't it, Kevin? <laughs> I am so happy to be here this morning, and I hope you are too. We've been going through a series called What is Worship? And we have gone through a process of defining what worship is, what it looks like, what some of the barriers are. So I just want to refresh your memory real quick. If you remember back just three, well, four weeks ago, we started with what worship requires, or what is required for worship. And we were reminded or we were taught, when we say we were reminded, it kind of sounds like we already knew it. Most of the time we didn't really. So we were, we were taught, we were encouraged that worship requires a recognition, number one, of God's majesty. Remember that in Isaiah, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. And not only does it require a recognition of His majesty, but it also requires a recognition of God's holiness. And then, as we're looking at this majestic, holy God, a recognition of my own depravity. And when you have those components there, what you find is you you realize this high and lifted up God, and you have, just like Isaiah, you say, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips, and from a people of unclean lips. And so we said that worship requires, that is kind of the foundation of the recognition. Then the following week, we talked about how... Worship needed to be in spirit and in truth. And the story of the woman at the well. Are you with me? It was on the website. I was, I was in Idaho. But click on the website. You hear the, you hear the message. Pretty neat. Little plug there. If you're ever out of town, you want to know what the message was, you can click on that. Then the following week after that, we had postures of worship. And how... God wants our hearts. And so God said, you know, these people, they, they, they worship me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And so Kevin brought to our attention the fact that we need to express it, to, to, to worship the Lord from our hearts and how that pours out and expression physically with our bodies. And so we talked about singing and shouting and, and clapping our hands and yes, even dancing a jig. And it's okay because we have freedom in Christ to do that. And so those are components that are important to understand worship. But worship isn't one of those pigs that's in the jar, remember in high school in biology, that you pull out once a year and you dissect and you've got to find the spinal cord and you've got to find the heart. It's not something to be studied scientifically like that. It is something to be lived. And so the question is, how do I live a life of worship. And that's what we're going to see today. So before we do that, I'd ask you to join me. Let's pray and ask the Lord to open our eyes and our minds and our hearts. Father, we come before you this morning and we recognize that we are limited. We are limited in our understanding. We are limited in our uh, comprehension of who you are. And we want to know you more. And we want to, Father, understand what it means to worship you. And we want to choose to live a lifestyle 
of worship. We ask this morning, Father, that you would help us to do that. Help us to learn, help us to grasp key concepts and apply to our own lives that which you are teaching us. In Jesus' name, amen. What does a life of worship look like? Um, remember the example that Kevin gave of the person that made him a little uncomfortable because she was raising her hand? Can you imagine if we walked around our office? That might make a little bit uncomfortable. In the grocery store, we're singing out loud. Maybe dancing. Well, I tend to do that when I'm shopping. We were standing in the store the other day, and I'm doing a little bit of this, and the guy looks over at me, and I said, sorry, i got to entertain myself somehow. (laughs) But honestly, what does that look like? What does it look like to live a life of worship? Is there some magic words that we need to say? Is there... We listen to a certain style of music. This is a worship genre. So everywhere we go, we have this soundtrack playing. No, there's more to it than that. And I think you know that. I I think you'd agree with me on that. I'm going to tell you what we're going to do. I am going to bet that you already live a life of worship. In fact, I'm going to suggest to you That every one of us, every day, is always living a life of worship. Would you agree with that? You're like, how does that mean? How does that I'm going to propose or suggest that every one of us lives a life of worship. And the question isn't, am I worshiping or not? But rather, what am I worshiping? Uh, Harold M. Best, in his book, Unceasing Worship, which has been a Uh, big influence in my life. And I would encourage you to read it. You need a big dictionary when you're reading it because he's used a lot of big words. Most chapters I had to read three or four times. But this is what he says. and, 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 And kind of follow through with me on this. He says, we are, every one of us, unceasing worshipers. And will remain so forever. That is to say, You and I are always worshiping at all times, and we will always be worshipers from now and for eternity. For eternity is an infinite extrapolation of one of two conditions. For you third graders and the rest of us who don't know what that means. That the idea is that through all eternity... These two things are always going to be at war with each other. What am I worshiping? Number one, a surrender to the sinfulness of sin unto ultimate loss or the commitment of personal righteousness unto infinite gain. So I want you to think about that for just a minute. As you think about the last 24 hours, can you say there are times in the last 24 hours Where I was worshipping myself. Where I was worshipping my ego. My favorite sports team. My wallet. Were there times when you're saying, I was worshipping God. If you were a hidden microphone in the Montgomery vehicle on the way back from Portland last night. There was a lot of worshiping going on, but it wasn't worshiping Jesus. 
And that's just being honest. Many times ourselves, our sinful desires become what we put as priority. And so I think he does a good job of describing that. So, we are all worshipers. So, how do I live a life of worship? You already are. The question is, how do I live a godly life of worship? And that is more of a challenge. As we go through here, I want to give you an example of what God expects a life of worship to look like. It's primarily geared, is directed specifically to, to us men, heads of household, but I think we can apply it to every single one of us in our lives. And so uh, we're going to go to Deuteronomy chapter 6, because any time you're going to preach a message on worship, you always start in Deuteronomy. Right? No, not Psalms, not Revelation. We go into Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, God describes a life of worship. God's talking to, jo- uh, to, jo- to, no- uh, to Moses. Wrong series. God is talking to Moses and he gives a definition of what he expects a life of worship to look like. And he says, now this is a commandment. The statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you that you may do them in the land which you are going over to possess. And you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son. So Moses is saying, here's, here's what God told me, and you need to know it, and your kids need to know it, and their kids need to know it. By keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you, all the days of your life, and that, that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. So here it is. He's, he's first of all said, you need to follow these instructions. You need to do it. Your kids need to do it. Their kids need to do it. And the, con- the consequence or the result is that it may go well with you, that you will live a, a prosperous life in this land that he had promised the children of Israel. And then he gives this section called the, the Oye or the Shema that any good uh, Jewish person would know, which is a call here. He says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. What's he saying here? He's saying, if you're breathing, you're talking about who I am. If you're awake, if you're going to bed, you're talking to your kids, you're talking to your neighbors, you're talking to everybody around you about who God is. He says you'll tie them as, 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 as a, some kind of frontlet here on your forehead. You'll tie them on your arm. It'll be on your doorpost. And it's funny. Because the Jewish people did just that. They took the heart out of the 
had the equation. And they went and bought these little boxes with Bible verses in there. And they put them right here. They got other ones and they wrapped them around their arm. And there's a little box on the doorpost of their house as they walk in. It kind of went through the motions. But they missed the point. Because a life of worship isn't a list of, if I do this, and then I do that, and then I do the other, I'm good. But rather, it is God saying, a life of worship is one that you're so in love with me that you can't stop talking about me. Remember when you first met your husband, your wife? Your friends finally said, okay, enough already. We know they hung the moon. Remember that? That's the way that God wants us to be in love with Him. And it doesn't take very long for life to happen. And pretty soon, that person that was just the most wonderful thing in the world has the most annoying habits in the world. And we get bored with them and we start talking bad about them. And we need friends that will come along and smack us upside the head and say, Hey, that's not how you treat them. You should love them, right? Have you, have you been through that? I usually get smacked very routinely. And you're free to join in because I need it. Verse 10, And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that He swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you, with great, good, great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant, and when you eat, you are full. Then take care, lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. You shall serve Him by, by His name you shall swear, and you shall not go after other gods, the gods of people who surround you, for the Lord put, for the Lord your God is in your midst. He is a jealous God. You read on and God describes how He's the one that brought them out of Egypt. He's the one that has cared for them. And He describes exactly what I just said. It happens in most of our relationships. We get all excited and then we get bored and we try to move on to the next thing. And it's no longer cool and it's no longer exciting. And God says, here's what I want from you. I want that your heart is so in love with me that when you wake up, when you sit down, when you're walking down the way, when you're talking to your kids, when you're having dinner or breakfast or lunch, you're talking about me. That you're living a life that is about me. Now, why does he do that? Does God, is God on some ego trip that he just, he just is just needing a lot of compliments? No. No, it's that he designed us and he made us to worship him. And as worshipers, when our focus is on him, he is lifted up and, and, and we get the benefit, side benefit, of being completely enraptured and in love with him. But he gets the glory. And that's what it's all about. As you look at this passage, you look at your own life, I look at my life and ask the question, am I living a life of godly worship? So, I thought I'd give you a couple examples. What I'm going to do is I'm going to pull out a couple of Bible stories. Perhaps you're familiar with them. We're going to look at what, what's going on there and maybe compare and contrast a couple of different things. 
and walk away with some points of what God, a life of godly worship is like or what it is. In the book of Daniel, who knows the story of Daniel? Raise your hand if you know the story of Daniel. What's the story of Daniel? In three sentences. He was a godly person in the town. He wanted to be godly, and so they threw him in a pit. Somebody else? What's that? The end? Yeah, he certainly talks about uh, end times. Daniel was a young boy. Ripped from his home by an invading force and taken to a far off land and turned into a slave. His circumstances stunk. He made the most of a bad situation perhaps, but his circumstances stunk. He was never going to be anything special. He was always going to be waiting on somebody in the hierarchy of the king of Babylon. Daniel had every reason to be angry. His family was killed. He's an orphan. He's a slave. He had every reason to say, I'm done with this God. He doesn't care for me. But if you look in the book of Daniel in chapter 1, just at the very beginning there, it describes how Daniel and several other young men were there. The king says, I want you to feed them all of the best. And the king's version of the best was included food that was sacrificed to idols. And so Daniel, well, go with me. Daniel chapter 1. Verse... Eight. Daniel chapter 1, verse 8. You with me? Down in Latin America, where I was raised, when you find the verse, you say amen. Let's try that. Daniel chapter 1, verse 8, when you find it, say amen. Okay, good. Now I know you're with me. But Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food, or with the wine which he drank. So he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. Daniel made up his mind that he wasn't going to do something that was dishonoring to God. So you have a, a guy here in a situation that has every right to be angry, perhaps to say, there is no God. Where was God? Why didn't he help me? Why didn't he take care of me? Why didn't he save my family? But rather than do that, he says, I'm here. I'm certainly not going to do something that brings dishonor to God. And he seeks out the person that he's answering to and says, I've made up my mind. I'm not doing this. Then I want you to remember another story in the Bible. Anybody remember about the golden calf? What happened with the golden calf? No? No memories? You afraid? I'm going to call out on you. Yes, Josh. I got a ringer in here. The Israelites made a golden calf to worship. That's right. So Moses was called up onto the mountain. Moses said, Joshua, go. Joshua stays behind. Moses is talking with the Lord. God is writing the commandments on the stone. 
And while he's doing all of that for 40 days and 40 nights, the people say, this Moses guy, he left us. We're all alone out here in the wilderness and we don't really have anybody to follow. We need a God because obviously the God that Moses follows is no God at all. So let's, let's, let's worship something else. Aaron, could you help us? Let's find a God. And Aaron says, uh, give me all your jewelry. Give me your earrings. And, we'll, and they fashioned this golden calf. And they worship. On the one hand, you have Daniel, who for the rest of his life is going into slavery. His circumstances very, very tenuous, right? On the other hand, you have the children of Israel. Moses has been gone for 39 and a half days. I can't handle it. Daniel's response is he pleads to God. Later on, we see the story of of, uh, Nebuchadnezzar has this crazy dream and nobody can tell him what the dream is, much less interpret what it means. And so he's going to kill all the wise men. And Daniel and his friends get together and they plead to God. They say, Lord, have mercy. Have compassion on us. In Exodus, the children of Israel were afraid to be alone. In a crowd. Daniel made up his mind. I'm going to do the right thing. When Moses comes down. He's very upset. He throws those tablets down. And he comes to Aaron and says. What in the world did you do? And Aaron says. Well I don't know what happened. I just. They gave me all this gold. And I threw it in there. And out popped a calf. Can we believe that? There was no intentionality there at all. There was no thought into that. And so from these stories, what can we draw out of there? Uh, That a godly life of worship, this would be our point number one if you wanted to call it that, a godly life of worship is a decision to love God in spite of my surroundings and regardless of how I feel. If you look at the children of Israel on the one hand, and you look at Daniel, you can see that Daniel lived a life of worship. And as a consequence, throughout his entire life, he was recognized. Just in chapter 2, two encounters that Daniel has had with the king, and the result is the king falls down on his face before Daniel and says, Your God. The consequence of the children of Israel is Moses saying, put a sword on your side and every one of you kill your brother, your father, your neighbor. And 3,000 people were killed. A godly life of worship is a decision, number one, to love God in spite of my circumstances and regardless of my surroundings. You with me? So, can't say amen you know what you can say you can say ouch you say ouch a lot we got another story we got an example here of 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 two characters you know who paul is right the apostle paul you know he was very well trained schooled sat with the best but well he tells us about that go to philippians chapter 3 Verses 4 through 
Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 8. There we go. I'll get him trained for you, Kevin. He says, Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness, which is of the law, found blameless. I got it all. I got the pedigree. Everything that's expected of a good religious Jew, I got it all. That's what Paul said. We see a man who invested his life in the pursuit of what he considered religious right. And then you go to the book of Judges. In the book of Judges, do you remember the story of Micah? Not Micah the prophet. Anybody remember the story of Micah? I'll tell it to you real quick. In the time of Judges, this guy named Micah goes up to his mom and says, Remember those uh, 1,100 pieces of silver that somebody stole and that you cursed? Yeah, that was me. I stole them. And mom says, Oh, the Lord bless you. Thank you for telling me that. And so he gives the money back to his mom. The mom gives it back to him. And he takes that money and he goes and he makes an idol. And he makes this whole, basically creates his own religion. And he has this little shrine and he, he has a, an ephod there that he made, which is just an artifact to worship. And he's got an idol. And one day, this guy from the tribe of Benjamin, a Levite. Who were the Levites? They were, that's where the priests came from, right? They were the, they were the ones who were leading nation of Israel in the worship of God. And this Levite comes along and I need a job. I'm a Levite. And Micah says, well, guess what? I have an idol. Why don't you be my priest? And just like that, this guy whose pedigree, whose heritage was a priest for the Lord God becomes a priest for an idol that Micah made up. And just like that, And Micah's response is, surely the Lord will bless me now because I have a Levite. As if some pedigree would earn you some special recognition in the eyes of God. So we saw that a life of worship is a decision to love God in spite of my surroundings and regardless of how I feel. But we also need to know that A godly life of worship is a confidence in the new life I have in Christ. The context of which Paul is talking about his pedigree is, he says, all of that is garbage. It doesn't matter if I was circumcised on the eighth day. It doesn't matter if I was trained by the best teachers. It doesn't matter if I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. What matters is, Have I recognized my need for a Savior and deposited all of my confidence in who Jesus Christ is? Growing up a preacher's kid, it's very easy to assume, well, whatever mom and dad did, I got a little bit of that on me too. It doesn't work that way. Kids, just because 
your mom and dad come to restoration, come to church, read their Bible, doesn't mean that you have a relationship with Jesus Christ unless you individually, personally choose to follow Him. See, coming to church isn't what it's about. It's about knowing Christ personally. A confidence in the new life I have in Christ. Staying with uh, Paul as an example and staying in Judges, I'd like to point you in another direction. Paul in Acts chapter 18, he's been traveling, he's on his second tour. He's well known, he's written a lot of epistles, he's spoken in a lot of places, he stood before some pretty powerful people. He gets to Corinth and he runs into this couple. Aquila and Priscilla. What did Aquila and Priscilla do for a living? No? What was that? Tent makers. That's correct. They had an average blue-collar life. They made tents for a living. And Paul met up with them, and he sits down, and he goes to work. Sometimes we get this idea that the closer I get to God, there's some kind of financial advantage. That if I can just, you know, be really, really spiritual, live a life of worship, then I get all these bennies. Most of us might be tempted at times to think that. I think the only person in here that would guarantee you that's not the case would probably be Pastor Kevin. (laughs) It's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. And not a lot of recognition most of the time. You have here Paul saying, it's time to sew some tents together. And in the same passage there, you have this Micah character who said, I can buy God's favor with ten pieces of silver and one shirt a year. I'm going to pay this priest ten pieces of silver and one shirt a year, and God has to like me now. He's got to do what I want, right? Because I bought him. As if God's favor could be bought with silver or a shirt. So, a godly life of worship is a decision to love God in spite of my surroundings and regardless of how I feel. A godly life of worship is a confidence in the new life I have in Christ. And a godly life of worship is reflected in the use of my personal treasure. What are those things that you call treasure? Is it your 401k? Is it your time? What are those things that you value most? And then ask yourself this question. Am I using this thing to somehow define myself as having earned merit? Or am I submitting those to the Father and saying, use, use them however you see fit. One of the problems, I think, as believers, as Christians, when we want to follow the Bible, we really would just love it if you just tell us, do this, don't do that, do this, don't do that, right? Because then it kind of takes out of the equation the heart. You can have two identical people do the exact same thing And one is a life of worship and one is not. You have here 
Micah trying to buy some kind of favor with God for ten pieces of silver in a shirt. And if you remember with me to the widow that was bringing her offering, and she gave that, that mite, right? The widow's mite, we, we hear that all the time. She gave everything she had. It wasn't much, but she gave everything she had. The use of what she had was more important. The attitude of what she, of what she gave was more important than the quantity or the volume. So the question is, or the statement here is, that a godly life of worship is reflected in the use of my personal treasure. I haven't even gone to trying to figure out applications to this yet. We're going to get to those in just a minute. Right now it's just in the conceptual, so we can all kind of shake our heads and say, yeah, yeah, that's right. When we get down to the application, we might be running, that, running for the door here. Lastly, I want to turn to John chapter 14. Jesus is having a, just a heart-to-heart discussion with his disciples. We read through this passage several times. I'd encourage you to do the same. Not looking to embarrass, but as we were reading through him about the fourth time, reading through it, all of a sudden, I was driving, Lacerda's reading. She gets about halfway through, the third or fourth time, and she can't read anymore because she's just completely moved. Moved to tears at what Jesus is saying here. Because, well, let's go through it. He says, uh, I'll just read it all here. He says, don't, do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many dwelling places. As if, if it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again. And receive you for myself. That where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. Jesus says, I'm going ahead, I'm preparing a place for you, and you know where I'm going. And Thomas says, uh, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? And Jesus says, what? What did Jesus say? Let's try it. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. If you jump down, well... He says, if you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you know him and have seen me. Jesus says, you want to know who God is? Get to know me. You want to know what God is all about? Get to know me. Jump down to verse 15. And he says, if you love me, You will keep my commandments. And he repeats that several times in the chapter. Jesus is saying, if you want to know God, if you want to be close to Him, if you want to know what He's all about, get to know me. And if you love me, you'll do what I say. So what does a life of worship, a godly life of worship, look like? When you're walking down the street... Is it that person that's walking around with their hands held high and their eyes closed and hoping they're not running into something? No. But it is somebody who is 
passionately in love with who Jesus is. It's not a style of clothes. It's not a genre of music. It's not the church that you go to. It is a relationship with Jesus Christ. So what does a life of worship look like? Somebody who loves Jesus. How can you tell somebody who loves Jesus? Is it because they never do anything wrong and they're always perfect? No. I think if you were to look through the Bible as an example of what a life of worship is, the best example I can show you from the Old Testament would probably be David. He's a guy who loved God, who spent time with Him, who sang to Him, who wrote songs about Him. He lived a regular life. He had to run a country. He had to spend a lot of time fleeing from his enemies. And he made mistakes. And even in the making of the mistakes, even in the the worst, most sinful time in his life, he always turned back to God and said, okay, I need you. I think that is probably the best way to describe what a life of worship looks like. When I go to the office, when you go to the office and you're sitting there and, and maybe it's the temptation to uh, fudge on our expense report. Or maybe it's the temptation to, to use a, a, a different vocabulary than we might tend to use on a Sunday morning. Maybe it's the temptation to be less than honest to get the sale. We can be like Daniel and decide that regardless of what our circumstances are, regardless of what our surroundings are, we're going to decide to do that which honors God. That is a life of worship. A life of worship is a life of somebody who spends time getting to know who Jesus is. How do we do that? Meet Him at the country club? No. We spend time reading His Word. I know, every preacher always has to say that. It's on the list. Make sure you mention. Why do we mention that? Why do we say that? Because as we, get to, as we read His Word, we get to know who He is. And as we get to know who He is, we get to recognize more of His majesty. We get to recognize more of His holiness. And guess what? We get to recognize more of our own depravity. We might fall into the trap of saying, well, He already saved me. So I'm good. And just like he said in Deuteronomy, he says, be careful. When you get into the land, you might be tempted to forget who I am. What does a life of worship look like for a wife? Well, I've never been a wife. It's a little bit harder for me to identify. I don't think I'd want to be my wife. I don't make it easy. Well, much like in the office, as a, as a wife, we go to God's Word and say, what does it say? We spend time with our children. We spend time teaching them to love the Lord. We spend time with our husband. If, if we work at, a, at an office, it's the same kinds of stuff. Are we in, involved in the, in the gossip? Are we involved in the, in the uh, challenging the authority there at work? Are we, are we part of that? Are we dishonest with the use of our time? Those are, those are important things. And kids, what does a life of worship look like for, 
for a kid. Ephesians says, children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. That's not a suggestion. God wants us to worship Him, and the way that we worship Him is by obeying His commands. So we need to spend time in His Word, we need to get to know Him, and then we need to do what He says. So, what does a life of worship look like? I would say a life of worship is a life of obedience. Can you agree with me on that? So take a minute, real quick, and ask yourself, how could I make my life a life, a godly life of worship? Maybe there's something that's popping into your mind. I know a lot of times when somebody's preaching, the Holy Spirit will prompt me and say, oh, it's the X or the Y. Do you, you see that in your mind? Do you, you see what it is? Let's take some time. We're going to pray. And we're going to ask the Lord in each of our lives to help us live out a life of worship, a godly life of worship, not one that is worshiping sinfulness, not one that is worshiping myself, but rather one that is worshiping God for who He is and recognizing Him and loving Him and obeying Him. Let's pray.